Welcome to the Pinkleton Pull Aside podcast. On this podcast, let's step aside from our busy lives to have fun, fascinating, life-giving conversation with inspiring authors, pastors, sports personalities, and other influencers, leaders, and followers. Sit back, grab some coffee, or head down the road, and let's get the good and gold from today's guest. Here's Jeff Pinkleton, Executive Director of the Gathering of the Miami Valley, where their mission is to connect men to men and men to God. Hello, friends. Welcome again today to another episode of the Pinkleton Pull Aside podcast, where we like to talk all things life, leadership, lessons therein. We like to do that in the world of comedy, of sports, of music, business, books, authors, pastors, the list goes on and on. And today we get to do that with a guy who fits into several of those categories, definitely pastor, definitely ministry leader, author, a guy who I feel like is probably a very kindred spirit with me as I connect men to men and men to God and do that in retreat spaces and reading books in small groups. And today we're blessed to have on Alan Fadling, who's way out west here of Ohio in California, if I'm correct, right? We're in California? Yes. Orange County, California. A little bit warmer than weather this time of year in Ohio, I'm guessing. I'm going to bet you're right. What's the weather like today in your neck of the woods? Well, I'm looking outside. It's a light overcast. We're probably in the mid to high 60s today. It's this December Summer. weather out here is, is one of our nicest months, all things considered. Somebody has to suffer for Jesus, so it might as well be you, <laughs> Alan, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, so the connection is I read probably there's not much time where I'm not reading something about spiritual disciplines, about healthy rhythms, about rest, mm. about Sabbath living. And I can't remember exactly where the first time I heard about some of your content, but unhurried leader is the one that ultimately grabbed my attention the most. And it was very frustrating reading this book, thinking about preparing me to talk to you because I highlighted way more than not. And it reminded me, and I hope you'll take this as a great compliment. It is not the same book by any means imagination, but it reminded me of how knowledge of the Holy was for me when I read it. I get a couple oh, pages in book. and I can't go forward. I have to stop and pause and take notes and highlight and think about it and process. And knowledge of the Holy, I tell people all the time, if you want one book outside of the Bible that I would read over and over and over and over. It, that might be my book. I'm putting wow. your book up there. It's That's pretty high praise. I, I appreciate that. Yeah. Okay, let's stay on that for a minute. So you write a book. You told me before we came on here that you were, you know, hoping like one person would read it. You were something you kind of <laughs> felt needed, called to do or whatever. Talk about, I'm curious with authors, like what, what is some high praise you've gotten for this? What are some compliments and things that you're like, wow, I didn't do it for that, but... Here's some cool things that have happened because of this book. Well, I think maybe the thing I'm most grateful for is I've had a chance to share these ideas outside of North American contexts, mm. uh, India, Dominican Republic, Africa, Russia. What has so encouraged me is that the ideas seem to work in all of those cultural mm. contexts. You know, sometimes you write a book and it, and it lands in a particular culture and it speaks to that culture. And that's important and that's good. I really set out to try and write something that I hoped would reach beyond my own cultural experience, my own time, maybe. Uh, so that was my hope. And 
you know, we now just had our 10th international edition of one of the books um, begin to be produced. So maybe that's the thing I'm most grateful for and most proud of. Mm -hmm. What does that do personally for your heart? When you think about your own heart, I mean, I'm sure, especially just only having read Unhurried Leader, I've got a couple other ones I will get to, but did you write it and realize like, wow, this is maybe more for me than I realized. And you come back to some things or, you know, it'd be interesting to see what a rewrite of this would be down a road because I'm thinking this yeah. stuff will just go on for decades and centuries and really not need to be changed. Maybe where other books need updated, need change, need contemporary language. This may not be that. Yeah. I, well, as I said, I, I think a lot of authors write books they need. And I think if they do that well, I think that often then speaks to others because, you know, Henry Nowen was one who said that which is most truly personal is most universal. Mm. Like if you really get down to the nub of something you needed to hear from God and you find a way to communicate that well, that often will speak to many, many others. So I think as I think about that first book that I wrote now, it's been 10 years ago. Again, I needed and need it. Mm. I am a recovering speed addict is the phrase in the first line of my first book. And by that, I don't mean a drug. I mean my soul and the pace of my soul. So being able to share that with leaders in you know North American contexts and other contexts, seeing how tired sometimes leaders become, how burnout has become this dramatic sort of dynamic in the current context uh, and being able to speak into that. I want leaders, wherever they find themselves planted, to find that the yoke of Jesus fits mm. very well and it is not burdensome. Yeah. That may be a facet of good news we need to remember. Yeah. I don't know if you've read the book by Dane Ortland, Gentle and Lowly, and he really picks apart Matthew book. 11. And that's the only thing really that Jesus says about himself. Yeah. And I'm going to get to this in a minute about a pastor friend of mine who we had a conversation recently about rest that I found pretty controversial. But it, it does feel like it's a big thing in culture now. And I think you said you were a recovering speed addict. I've been thinking a lot in the last several days about this line I just heard, and I think I'd heard it one other time, but the military uses about slow is smooth, smooth is fast. Yes. Unpack that for us based on where you've had some fruit be born in your life and experience some winsome stuff. Unpack that kind of phrase yeah. and what, what that might mean and help be helpful to people who hear this. So one of the lines I quoted in, in that first book, An Unhurried Life, comes from a few centuries ago. Uh, when a gentleman by the name of Vincent de Paul said, the one who hurries delays the things of God. Mm. Oh, man, that one hits me between the eyes. And so what I want to say uh, to Christian leaders is the busyness for Jesus that sometimes fills our lives is no guarantee of fruit that will last. I find that a lot of times my busyness is rooted in something very different than communion with God. It can be rooted in my anxiety. It can be rooted in my insecurity. It can be rooted in a lot of places, but only when it's rooted in a friendship with Jesus. When I'm a branch, he's a vine, I'm connected, and his life is flowing into me and through me. That's when my life bears fruit that matters, a quality, and that's when the fruit of my life lasts. My opportunity to be of influence in the lives of others. 
And so I think I can get more done unhurried than I can get done hurried. Yeah. Hurry kind of skims the surface. Unhurried, I think, sinks in. So let me ask you. So, uh, do, you, do you travel much, Alan? Until COVID sort of shut that down, yeah, I traveled a ton. Well, you're probably dealing with people beyond just your space in California. Yeah. So, let's say from Ohio to California, do you feel like John 15 is something that really seems to be landing across Christian culture and in church world right now? I feel like it is. I've seen that multiple times over. Mm. I feel like people are landing in John 15 pretty hardcore. I think anything in the scriptures that speaks to depth, and I think John 15 does, I mean, it just couldn't be a simpler metaphor. You know, I'm here in California. We have a lot of vineyards in our state. And, you know, if you go to a vineyard, what people get excited about is, of course, all the beautiful greenery in the spring or all the amazing fruit in the summer, fall. Nobody ever gets excited about that boring spot where the branch and the vine connect. But that's the secret to it all. Mm-hmm. And I think that that uh, the mystery of that, the simplicity of that is really catching the imagination of people. Yeah. So in one of our small groups, we call them locker rooms. We had a group go through Abide in Christ by Andrew Murray, and we spent oh. months on it. Rich, rich, oh, rich. Yeah. Kyle Eidelman's new book about whatever you're doing isn't working or what what, yeah. what you do when nothing's working type of thing is about John 15. Yeah. I mean, it just seems to be landing, landing, landing. I preached about it. Uh, you know, I preach, you know, a handful of times a year. I've preached recently about it. And, and it's kind of exciting for me to think that that's where we are. You know, this idea in the church for years that the church had moved to this seeker sensitive kind of thing. Not that that in and of itself is bad. We, you know, it's sharing Christ as evangelism is seeking or you know, being sensitive to and finding people who are seeking Jesus. But this depth sure. over a mile wide and it's deep, I think is very pivotal. So before we go much further, I better jump in and not forget, tell us your three minute testimony. How'd you come to Jesus, Alan? Well, I grew up in a not particularly religious family. As a senior in high school, I was turning to drugs and drink and everything else I could find to some somehow make sense of my life. And God put me at a car wash with a boss who loved Jesus, a guy who got up early in the morning and spent hours with Jesus every day before he went to work at the Magic Tunnel Car Wash. Wow. Ah, that's a 70s work location. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, in fact, the song was a hit during that yeah. same season, right? Working at the car wash. So, but it was his life. It was his life, his joy, his care for the people who worked for him. That really impressed me. I went to a concert. I walked forward. Back in those days, that's what you did. Mm -hmm. You went forward in big gatherings. And I remember telling whoever I spoke to up there, I want what Jim has. Mm. It was a quality in his life that impressed me. And then that life deepened when I met some mentors in my 20s as a college pastor at that time. And John 15 turns out to have then been a critical moment for me. Mm. And therefore, it's been kind of a life passage all along the way. Like, how can I stay connected to Jesus? The Christian life is a relationship with Jesus. Ministry is a collaboration with Jesus. That's been my journey. So I think with someone who is like where you are, because you started Unhurried Living as a um, ministry, nonprofit, right? A number of years ago. Yes. 
that can go one of two ways. It's kind of like the band who, right, you know, the, in VH1 and MTU world, you know, we started using the language a lot about one hit wonder. And it's like, you know, the mm. band either is like, okay, I'm so sick of this song. I don't want to ever do it again. Or you take to the dance what brought you to the dance. Do you look at that yeah. and do you go back and forth at all? Or are you so firmly secure and cemented and loving what you do that you're like, no, this unhurried living, unhurried leader is the space I'm in and I love it. And I'm going to keep diving in. Or are you like, eh, I can yeah. kind of do without being a one trick pony. If, if that's how people wanted to label it, talk about that a little bit, Alan. Yeah. I appreciate that question. So when I talk about unhurried, I don't see it as a narrow niche. Mm-hmm. You know, I see it as a metaphor that works for a lot of big ideas. Mm. Uh, so to me, love only works when you slow down. <sighs> You, you can't love people in a hurry. No doubt. Peace, that is a slower virtue than anxiety, for example. Wow. Fruit that lasts takes a long time to produce and to develop. So I just find that this unhurried metaphor, I haven't gotten to the bottom of it yet. Mm. It still speaks to me. I still am finding new things that help me. The next book I'm going to release in about two months is called A Non-Anxious Life. Because the more I talk with leaders about hurry, the more I realize for a lot of us anyway, it's rooted in anxiety. It has been for me. So this is still a living journey for me. It's still got, it's got a lot of legs for me. Uh, and I, I think, I think there's a richness in it that I haven't gotten bored with. I haven't gotten to the bottom of, I haven't felt like it's time to move on from. Yeah. So a lot of things in your world come out of the famous Dallas Willard quote about ruthlessly eliminate hurry, which obviously John Mark Comer has a book and there's other things from it. You're spinning it different by using the term unhurried. That's not something I've heard, you know, a lot. So at what point in your life did that click? What was going on? And what was kind of the aha moment to say unhurried? That's it. Either on a personal level and you're not trying to market this and write about it. Because I think for any of us, I think you and I are probably similar. There's words phrases, a scripture, you know, today, uh, in my small group locker rooms, we call them James two thirteen. somehow that really resonated with me about mercy triumphs. Mm. I'm blanking. What is it? Mercy triumphs judgment. I've never thought about that as a phrase uh. like and today, mercy triumphs judgment or in King James mercy rejoices against judgment. It was just fascinating to me. Mm. So tell me how unhurried kind of clicked. Yeah. Well, actually, one of the seeds of it was, in fact, the sentence that Dallas Willard spoke to John Orford, Mm because that's where that ruthlessly eliminate hurry comes from. Sure. John was getting ready to go join the staff of a big Chicago area church and said, Dallas, you got something for me. What counsel do you have? And there it was. He wrote it down. He said, what else do you got for me? And Dallas said, do that. If you do, you'll, you'll be fine. I remember when I heard that sentence first, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry. And then a, a friend of mine was talking to Dallas and Dallas said he, he, he had a way of saying sentences that were like time bombs that would then go off in your brain later. And he said, if you had only one word to describe Jesus, which word would you choose? And of course, there's countless candidates, titles, descriptors, gentle, humble, whatever. Dallas said, the word I've been thinking I would choose is relaxed. And I remember the first time I heard that, I thought, relaxed? Mm. Like, is Jesus sitting in a lazy boy watching ESPN? I mean, what do you mean relaxed? So that really got 
under my skin. And I remember going to a retreat at our nearby monastery for three days. I did nothing but read the Gospels with that idea in mind. Is Jesus relaxed? Is that true? Is that a good description of it? Is it essentials? Because Dallas said, if he's got one word, that's the one he's picking. And the more I looked at it, the more I thought the genius of relaxed and little by little that translated in my imagination as unhurried. Mm. So uh, that's kind of where it got birthed. Wow. I'm going to tee it up for you and make you give it an easy answer. Yes. Here. Do you consider (laughs) yourself unhurried? And if you go, what's kind of been the tipping point, Uh, maybe an experience, maybe whatever, where you went from hurried to unhurried. And obviously it's a process, but yeah. when did when did the word unhurried fit? I think it has been a process. I think I had some big experiences in churches, exciting experiences, lots of people experiences. I would call them kind of hurried. And I can look back now 5, 10, 20, and now even 30 years later, and it doesn't seem like there was very much fruit that lasts, to use John 15 language. Jesus says, I chose you. I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. I think fruit that lasts is more unhurried, like a tree growing. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're going to plant an oak tree in your yard for shade, it's going to be 20 years, 30 years before that thing gives you anything that's approximating shade. But it's going to be one of the most solid trees in your neighborhood well beyond your lifetime. So unhurried has in my 30s, 40s, 50s, now 60s, been capturing my imagination as a way of thinking about maybe God will bear fruit in and through me that even outlives me. That would really be cool. Wow. Yeah, it's funny. I think it's in in the book. You talk about eucalyptus trees and trying to make things like that grow really fast and all the problems that come with eucalyptus trees versus making it go. It's it's sad that this just doesn't catch on sooner for us because I think anybody experiences this. I love, because I go to monastery regularly down in Kentucky, I love Mm. that you spent a few days focused on the word relaxed, and yet we still fight it. And I think, you know, we look at... You know, like say divorce, divorce in the church over the years has not been any better than it is in the world apart from the church. I think this is no different. I see it around me all the time. People either have to fight it or they've given up the fight. And they just say, no, I'm going to go live a crazy busy life. And I said, you know, it's the old line about, you know, if you win the rat race, you're still a rat and nobody wants to be on a <laughs> right. hamster wheel, but then we still get back on a hamster wheel. And I think the key thing I get from you, Alan, out amongst many things is in a very selfless way, you desire fruit is how your, your, the summation of this is. So you're going to allow things to happen. So fruit is, is being bared out in your life, which means you got to go slow. I just think so. I, if you think of the fruit of the spirit, those nine words that Paul uses in Galatians five, none of them work in a hurry. None of them are about hurry, faithfulness, patience. Think of those two. Gentleness is the one that, that jumps is, out to me. Yeah, absolutely. And you just wouldn't typically use gentleness to describe the typical popular leader in a North American context. Mm. Boisterous, brash, you know, is is a more common sort of uh, temperament. It seems like when we when we're picking leaders out there, gentleness 
that's a word Jesus uses to describe himself. And since I'm his follower, it's probably a good idea for me to consider what would it look like for me to be that way too. Yeah. I mentioned you, I love the story in my experience that I'm reading your book at the monastery and I take a picture of the book held out with the library kind of in the background and I send it to my friend Clark Kellogg, who of course is a longtime basketball analyst with CBS Sports and he's been tied to the Pacers and of course in my neck of the woods, Ohio State Buckeye grad and board trustee. Mm. And I texted him that because we trade secrets about books we're reading and we tend to like healthy rhythms, restful type of books. And he texted me back and said, I've read that book twice. And I said, all right, <laughs> help me out with Alan. Give me a few questions. So I'm going to use two of the questions he sent me. So Clark Kellogg, props to you. One of them is, Alan, where are your greatest joys in living an unhurried life? Like what are, what are maybe a couple ways you could practically let people know, like, here is something that you can experience too that's been a joy for you in an unhurried life? Yeah. So the the word that comes to my mind that has been a word that is very joyful for me is the word presence. In my hurried life, I'm looking past people to get to the next thing I need to get done, done, or at least I think I need to get done, done. But the only moment I have to live is the present moment. Therefore, the only person I have to give my attention to is the one right in front of me. And the joy of being present to God and the joy of being present to the person I'm with, instead of being scattered, Mm -hmm. trying to live part of my life in the past or relive it, trying to live part of my life in the future, the next few things on my to-do list, learning to just put that aside and be where I'm at. That's where God is. That's where I am. That's where grace is. That's where peace is. That's where the divine opportunities are. And that brings me a lot of joy. Give us another example of that. I think another idea of of being present is I, I see ministry as something I do with God, not for God. I, I mean, I grew up in a culture, a ministry culture where our heroes said things like, I'd rather burn out than rust out for God. Sounded really noble, sounded so heroic. The longer I've listened to it, the more I thought, really, those are my only two options? I either destroy my life or waste my life? Maybe neither of those is what Jesus is inviting me to. Maybe he's just inviting me to walk with him and to work with him. His yoke is easy. And part of the reason it's easy is because I'm in it with him. He's carrying the heavy end. I love that vision of my life and my work. Mm, wow. There's so much good. I, I feel like this could become like a four-part series of a podcast here. So um, <laughs> let, give, us, give us an example. What's a challenge even now or maybe throughout over a period of time that you face embracing and practicing in an unhurried life and how you navigate that? This is another Clark Kellogg question. Yeah. So I think when I first started thinking about hurry, I mostly thought about calendar and to-do lists and too busy in my work, a more outward sort of vision of hurry. And that's a, that's important. We need margin, all those things. The more I think about hurry, the more I realize it really starts in my soul. Dallas Willard used to say, you know, busy, that's your calendar. Hurry, that's your soul. And so 
realizing what it is in me that gets me hurried. And that's where this next book project in some ways was rooted. It's it's often anxiety. I come by it honestly. My mom grew up in a post-World War II Midwestern orphanage. You grow up in an orphanage, you learn anxiety. That little girl becomes a mom. I become her firstborn son. I'm schooled in anxiety growing up. It's not my mom's fault. It's just a fact. And so my lifelong journey has been to realize maybe my anxiety is wrong about my life and about my future. And that anxiety driving me to hurry, hurry to impress people, hurry to produce something, hurry to, to, to make something happen, whatever it is. All of that is about my soul. And so one of the things I think is true is anxiety has been hard for me to let go of it because I think it drives me to lots of productivity and to high standards. But I've come to realize that if anxiety is fuel, it's fuel that burns dirty. Mm. And peace is like renewable energy. It's like it gives me access to things like joy and hope and love, all of which are far better energy sources for good work than anxiety will ever be. Let's speak to peace specifically. You said you got a book coming about anxiety. We won't go too deep into that, and we'll let that be either A, another podcast, or B, a reason for people to buy the book. What do you do to fan into the flame for yourself personally, Alan, about peace? How do you allow peace to exist in your life more fully? Yeah, so one of the sentences I loved in writing that book is that my anxiety is like practicing the absence of God. Mm. It's like anxiety is what love looks like when God's not in the picture. Anxiety is your cares without a bigger care that surrounds it and upholds it and sustains it. And so for me, in some ways, it's very simple. Psalm 23, that the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. That's either true or it's not. Yes. If it's true, that is going to do something to my anxiety. Because mostly the, my anxiety is saying, I won't have enough. It won't work out. You're, you're in great danger. Uh, you are threatened. I mean, like, <laughs> my anxiety is like a, a very uh, not-so-wonderful counselor. And um, I've just found that trusting that I have a good shepherd and that when something happens to surprise me, shock me, that I don't like, the Lord is my shepherd is a more wonderful counselor than my anxiety is. Wow, that's good. Well, let me get a little goofy here. We've got some fun we like to do, and I'd hate to not do this with you. So we do these rapid five kind of silly, kind of informative, pretty quick hitting <laughs> questions. So let's do that. Alan, what is your favorite childhood snack or cereal? I was famous for a bag of Doritos and a huge Coke. Okay. Are they the old school, only one flavor or are you throwing in like oh, some yeah. cool ranch? Original Doritos. Nacho. <laughs> okay. It's funny. The when only I, one there was. When I ask people this question, it's funny some of the answers people give where it was like one way back in the day. I was at a, a grocery store recently and I stopped and talked to someone I know and I don't, I don't, I hardly ever drink pop, but we were standing in a pop aisle and I looked and it was either Mountain Dew, oh, it was Dr. Pepper. There are like seven or eight types of Dr. Pepper now. I'm like, I used to love Dr. Oh, Pepper. Oh, oh, oh. There's seven or eight flavors of this now? 
felt yeah, no, there was one. I don't even think they had Diet Coke at that. Yeah, point for me. it felt I felt a little ungodly seeing some goofy flavors like blueberry <laughs> or raspberry or grape. I'm like, I think my Dr Pepper's nah. fine as is. So, Alan, besides something that's yours, what is your favorite book you most want to gift or do gift to other people? Yeah, a book, maybe the way I'd say it is I've recommended this more than maybe any other book was Henry Nowen's The Way of the Heart, Ooh. Desert Spirituality. So it's what introduced me to retreat. It's what introduced me to the trifold sort of vision of life of, of communion and community and ministry gotcha. as a way of seeing things. Yeah, he's, he's it's interesting. He is really big and obviously at the monastery where I go to Thomas Merton was there and oh, yeah. stayed there, but now and stuff is all over the place. It's, it's crazy. So you're never going to go wrong reading some good now and for sure. Yes. Let's say family, you got extended family. You're out on a vacation. You're driving either across the state or you're heading East somewhere. Cause you can only go East unless you're going to swim and you see huh. an exit sign when you're going to stop maybe sooner than you planned. And you see, McDonald's, Chick-fil-A, or In-N-Out Burger? Where's Team Fadling stopping? Uh, well, being a lifelong California boy, In-N-Out has been our go-to. We used to live right near In-N-Out number one, the original, uh, where they got the college, oh, wow. the university, the whole nine yards. And okay. so we're pretty, we're pretty big in and out fans. Okay. That's, I like that answer a lot. I've, I've only had it a few times. Pe some people want to argue from out this way. Is it really as good as they say? I said, it's pretty stinking good. And it's a simple <laughs> menu. I love simple menus. So very simple. Yeah. They do, they do what they do well. What Alan would you say is a, a movie that gets you in? You and Jim are hanging out on a Friday, Saturday night, get just wanting to relax. What's a movie that pulls you in every time you stumble across it? When we got married in the mid '80s, a couple of years later, Princess Bride came out, oh, yeah. and that that is got to be one of the most quotable movies yeah. of all time. I literally just quoted it two days ago at breakfast with some men. Uh, <laughs> so, anytime that shows up, uh, or we just go look for it, it's 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 gold. You know, it's crazy. I did I did Young Life for years, and I know that was a popular movie to watch on the bus on the way to Young Life camp trips. And uh, I never have – no, I think I watched it with my daughter once when she was little because she wanted to watch it all the way through. But I've never kind of gotten into it to that level. I know some people absolutely love it, love it, love it. But the first thought that hits my mind every time I hear about it is Andre the Giant was in that movie. Yes, that is right. Yeah. Yeah, there's some great stories uh, when you – when you watch the background of how they produced it. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. Some of the scenes where there was like falling or whatever is funny because I'm like, it's definitely dated. Like it doesn't look super contemporary with some of that, but I think that was part of the fun that they're having in that. So last one of these kind of goofy questions, who is your first celebrity crush? Well, it would have been the seventies. And so a lot of us guys crushed on Farrah Fawcett, yep. you know, Charlie's angels and all that. So she would probably be, They'd probably be the one. I interviewed back-to-back -back people one time. and Or no, no, I think I interviewed two guys together on here. And one of them said Farrah Fawcett, and the other one said Cheryl Ladd. And both those guys <laughs> yeah. both those guys are sports writers, and they both have influenced me and invested in me for Jesus a lot. So I'm like, well, I guess I'm a mm. disciple of uh, Charlie's Angels, to say the least. So <laughs> That's funny. Anyway, so I mentioned to you earlier, Alan, I had a conversation with a pastor friend of mine at a community event 
we're relaxed. We're with our spouses. We're with some other couples. And we get into a talk about this topic. And it came from some people we knew that were reading Ruthlessly Eliminate Hurry. And his pastor yep. friend of mine said, I feel you could tell he it wasn't sitting good with him. And he said, I think mm-hmm. we're going a little too far here. He goes, I think rest and some of those words are a little too much Christian buzzwords now. And he goes, which I, I would agree with this part of what he said. I think we can make it too much of an idol. And I'm like, really? I said, yeah. if you took a hundred people and so that are they running around like chickens with their head cut off or are they spending too much time resting? I don't think there's any question. We know where that's going. So speak to what my friend was saying about maybe we're making too much of this. I can appreciate it. Anything can become a buzzword. And anything can become an idol. Idols are something good that gets distorted, uh, that gets turned upside down. Ministry success can become an idol. So I recently uh, produced a podcast episode for hours titled Cultivating a Good Rest Ethic. Mm. I think we have generally, a lot of us in ministry have a pretty darn good work ethic that was modeled for us, mentored to us. I don't remember a mentor in a rest ethic, but I think a rest ethic is critical. For example, in the scriptures, Sabbath is not a Jewish thing. It's a creation thing. It's from the very beginning of the story. And the first full day that humanity lives is not a work day. It is a rest day. It's the seventh day. Rest is where I remember who God is. Rest is where I remember who I am. Work is where I express those things. We live in a culture where we try and prove who we are by what we do instead of remember who we are in places of rest, in solitude, silence, communion, whatever. So I think rest is like the fertile soil where the best work grows. Yeah. But yeah, I, it was interesting. I, I appreciate your stance to kind of balance that out and not disagree because it's funny. We're at this event, lighthearted, fun, celebratory, and I'm kind of wanting to go toe to toe. And I'm part of me is kind of thinking, okay, is he jealous because the John Mark Comer book's done so well and we want to go against what's popular in culture or, you know, what. So anyway, let me ask you about, as I said earlier, I know retreats are something that means something to you, you and Jim do. Is it one a year, two a year? How many retreats do you do a year? Oh, I, I don't even know how to count. It's a major part of what we do. A lot of our speaking and training is in retreat context. That's, that's our sweet spot. And so we host retreats. I go and I speak at retreats all year long. How many do you host roughly in a given year? Because I know there's like 20 people is uh, the limit and it's in California. Yeah. More of them are retreats that other people host. We only really host a few here locally. <laughs> the hosting part is a lot of work. Sure. I would prefer to just lead the retreat part. And so mostly we try to find others who will host a gathering somewhere local for, to them and then we can come and facilitate the time of retreat. Speak to that, because for retreats for me, they're huge. My board has kind of green-lighted me. We do about one a month in some way, shape, or form. Either There's very few we put on, but we'll go to the Cove in Asheville, North Carolina, or we go. Oh, yeah. Um, I'll do a retreat that I lead at a place that's a couple hours away called The Springs in Indiana. We go to the Abbey Gethsemane, and we can do that. And we show up at lunch and dinner together and go to a talking dining room and share what's been going on. Why are retreats, yeah. what, what are some successes, testimonies, 
things that you've seen that have been really good, like that is why you retreat. Yeah. Well, one of the lines in the Gospels that kind of underlies my own vision for retreat is in the Gospel of Luke. Chapter 5, Luke tells us that Jesus often withdrew to lonely places to pray. Often, he says, often withdrew. It was a rhythm. And of all the Gospels, Luke is the one that most highlights that rhythm in the life of Jesus, not just in that little line. So what I would say is that to me, retreat is that moment where I step back from my work, I step back from what I'm engaged in, and I see my life, I see my work from a better perspective. We happen to live on top of a hill here in Orange County, so from our bedroom, I can look out over most of Orange County, and I can, at night, if it's clear, I can see the fireworks at Disneyland. I have perspective. Retreats, for me, give me vision. For then, when I step back into my busy days and all the things I'm doing, I'm doing it from a, a place of better vision. The other thing I've seen happen over and over in retreat settings is all the re-words, renew, restore, refresh. Mm, yes. Those things happen in retreat. Well, then you bring that back to your work, and it makes an immense difference. It's like, who does better work, the refreshed, renewed, restored mm. person? or the exhausted, burnt out, wiped out person? Well, that's not a hard question to answer. Retreat is often a mode that helps people find their way of being, being all that they could be for the work that they've been entrusted. Yeah, I love the line, I'm sure you've heard it, that Mark Batterson uses about change of pace plus change of place equals change of perspective. We were yeah. just, my wife and I were just at Windshape in Georgia and they, mm. somebody there added the phrase change of people. Like even being around different people can add a perspective. Uh, we, we've coined the phrase when we've done several retreats in Montana, we've said, let's take a Montana pace and put it in an Ohio or Springfield or Miami Valley space. Mm. Let me ask you this with where you are in your life right now, um, Alan, coming out of an unhurried living space, get, get kind of personal with us on this. What makes you these days, I'm going to throw out four kind of emotional things to you. What makes you sad? One of the things that makes me sad is the amount of ministry burnout that I am seeing. Mm. I've never seen more emergency sabbaticals for Christian leaders than I'm wow. seeing in these last two years. Never. I've been in ministry, paid ministry, local church and otherwise for 40 years. I've never seen it like this. I've never seen more discouraged, drained leaders than I'm seeing wow. these days. So that makes me very sad. What about what makes you smile with hope or feeling of God's kindness right now? I think the idea that God is always inviting us back. Mm. He wants us. That the whole story of the scriptures, the whole story of Jesus is a story that God wants us. That he didn't choose us to have more workers. He chose us mm. as children, as friends, who then happened to get to work with him. Yeah. What an honor, you know? Yeah. You alluded, I think, to, or I think we talked about participation or something. But yeah, I, I think the fact that we get to participate, partner in the gospel, that God created in such a way that, in a sense, we're not needed, but it's like he made it, that we are needed because we do it. I mean, that just blows my mind. I'm rattled often thinking about that. Like, wow, he allows me to partner with him. What? Yeah, I love that. 
<laughs> what makes you these days laugh with joy? Where do you just laugh? What, what's causing great laughter in your life? Well, this may not sound like a funny laugh, but I find myself just uh, erupting in joy when I see somebody making a counter-cultural decision mm. to be faithful to Jesus. Mm. Like when they're willing to do something that won't get them a headline, mm. I just I just find myself so grateful and so joyful because I just think that's who Jesus was and is. Yeah. There's so many things, so many ways Jesus could have come and lived his life. But he chose the one he chose. I love when I see someone faithfully following Jesus in a countercultural way. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I've done sabbatical twice and three of the areas I focus on when I do sabbatical besides how I spend and change the pace of timing with family and friends is I said, I love to read on a deeper, more fluent level of just going. I love to travel and I love to laugh. So I will, I will overdose on comedy shows, on watching <laughs> things that really make me laugh. It just brings me a lot of joy. And, and something about laughter to me is one of the holiest things I think we can experience as followers of Jesus. So lastly, these yeah. days, what is making you angry? Where do you have holy anger towards maybe something in culture, church world, or on a personal level? Yeah. Well, I think my answer would be, I think it's similar to moments when I see Jesus angry in the Gospels. He gets angry when people turn the life of faith into a burden. Wow. I get angry when I see people proclaiming a gospel that makes people's lives heavier and harder. That is not the good news that I hear Jesus proclaiming. And so when the good news gets distorted like that, I get really angry. Mm. So as we close, last question, what in this season, you know, we're wrapping up a year, we're heading into the new year, we're doing all those kind of good things. What is God really trying to draw out? Is there a Christ-like quality? Is there a fruit of the spirit? What is God really trying to mold and shape in Alan Fadling's life right now? So the word I would use and it's a word I guess I aspire to, is the word simplicity. Mm. I think of David's prayer in Psalm 27. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon his beauty and to seek him in his temple. The simplicity of like a hub with multiple spokes. I feel like maturity moves in the direction of simplicity, away from complexity and that's it's where i feel like god uh, has me and i'm i'm <laughs> i'm wrestling but i am trying to learn that wow alan this has been i feel like i've just committed an hour of my life to be able to get ministered to by you for you with you um so wow. I, I greatly thank you for that i'm excited when this comes out that you know i really hope leaders people friends t- people tied to our ministry really take this in and absorb what you shared because I, you know, I'm a big fan of podcasts myself, whether I take them in or I'm a part of this. So people can find out more about you through unhurried living. One of the things I've done is you have a, a thing where you can sign up to get a 40 day journey in your inbox. You've got the retreats yeah. out in California. I think, I think if I remember correctly, you have one coming up maybe in the spring. Yes. Out here in Malibu. Yeah. It's a place to suffer for Jesus. Like I said, where <laughs> somebody has to exactly CBD, Amazon, where are places people can go to get more content and to find out more what you're up to? Yeah. So the books, you can buy those books pretty much anywhere you like buying books. 
But, you know, we've got actually a couple of podcasts. I have one and my wife has one. Both of those are accessible from our website, unhurriedliving.com. We have a weekly Wednesday email that is curated and edited, and it's meant to be a word of encouragement or a word of vision for Christian leaders. And there's a lot of other resources you can access on our website. So unhurriedliving.com. As far as social media, really the only place I spend a little bit of time is on LinkedIn. That's where I tend to be engaged. So if you want to connect in that way, that's a place to be. Well, I'd love to have you back and talk uh, about a non-anxious life when that comes up. So maybe we could have you back on again and use that as a promotional tool and teach people new things we need to learn from the life of you, Alan. Grateful for your hey, time. Hey, I would enjoy that a lot. Thank you. Have a good day, folks. Thank you for joining us on the Pinkleton Pull Aside podcast. You can reach Jeff at gatheringmiamivalley.org or find us on Facebook at The Gathering of the Miami Valley. Join us again next week for another honest and rich conversation. The Rise FM Podcast Network.